and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it is Women's History Month here in the United States. Herstory. Yeah, great. Well, with that in mind, let's take a look at some prehistoric evidence for ladies in the past. Ancient history. Yeah, stop. I'm going <laughs> to talk about the Paleolithic. Um, uh, the Paleolithic. Did you have another one? No. Paleolithic. Mm. No. It's not the Paleolithic. The Paleolithic. Nope. You know what? Uh, okay. 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 Now I'm So mad. the Paleolithic okay. in Europe <laughs> lasted a long time, um, around 2.5 million years ago to around 10,500 years ago. And so that's from Africa to Europe. <laughs> uh, give or take. So that's a long time. Uh, the way that it's usually broken up is by looking at categories of material culture, which is stuff that people made. Usually this starts off with stone tools. And so you may recall from our human evolution episodes, we briefly talked about this uh, stone mm. tool typology. And so we've got our earliest stone tools in Africa with the Oldowan industry, followed by the Acheulean, which those hand axes, large cutting tools. And then around 300,000 years ago, we hit the Middle Paleolithic. And we've got, this is specifically in Europe, we've got Mousterian technology, which is uh, made by Neanderthals, which involves prepared stone cores, flake forms that have been, you know, flakes that have been chunked off of a stone core and then retouched to sharpen them, um, some compound tools, so things hafted onto handles, some bone tools, and maybe even some wooden spears and digging sticks. And then in Europe around 50,000 years ago, we've got the Upper Paleolithic, and we've got the Aurignacian, Chateauperonian, Gravettian, Solutrian, and Magnolenian tool technologies, among others. So all of these are, are categories of tool typologies that are usually named after the sites where they're first recognized. In the Upper Paleolithic, we've got general trends okay. of tools being smaller, requiring more time invested in making and curating them, um, so keeping them sharp, more evidence of a wider range of raw materials, and importantly for this episode, this is where we see the first evidence of figural art. In the Gravettian, oh. 33 to 24,000 years ago, we, we start seeing art that represents actual figures, specifically lady figures. We're going to talk about lady statues. And not just in the Paleolithic, but we'll start there. Right, because it's the first, the, they're the first ones that we know of. Yep. So this, this heading is entitled, do, 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 lady statues. All generally accepted. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I wrote it and I'm still, I find it very funny. It is very funny. <laughs> All generally accepted Paleolithic figurines representing the female figure are from the upper Paleolithic. Um, and the majority of those are from the Gravettian and Solutrian periods. In these periods, the more rotund figurines are predominant. Um, during the Magdalenian, the forms become a little bit finer, they involve more detail, and they start becoming stylized in, in a consistent way. And there's a lot finer of them. Finer in the, like... Like finer detailing. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine? Yeah, they, they so fine. Oh. No, 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 like as in the workmanship, <laughs> the craftsmanship is finer. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of these figurines considering um, that they're typically... There's like a close to 150 of them. Yeah. Known. So we're just going to... We're not going to cover all of them. Um, <laughs> hello and welcome to a week-long marathon episode of The Dirt. <laughs> Here's one. Yeah. It broke in half. <laughs> Up first is maybe one of the, the most recognizable ones. Um, and we will, of course, have images up on our social media of the ones that we talk about here. But it's the Venus of Willendorf, possibly Willendorf. So the most famous uh, and well-known of these figurines is the Venus of Willendorf, found in 1908. And a researcher called Walpurga Antelweiser 
describes the statuette saying, The Venus one from Willendorf is a rather realistic representation of an obese woman, which combines the natural form with the stylistic scheme of Paleolithic statuettes reflecting past transcendental ideas. To which I say, what? The Venus of Willendorf, it's a very rounded figurine with the, the head turned slightly to the right. It's carved out of oolitic limestone, which is that's a really cool word, oolitic. And that is limestone. It's made out of oolies. <laughs> well, it's made out of oolites, which are compressed yeah, which spherical grains, little eggs. And it comes from the Greek word for eggs, so little eggies. The eggs. So um, it just looks like a bunch of little eggies. Yeah. So actually it kind of looks like styrofoam. A little bit, but it is styrostone. Like, um, mm, mm, the thing that's significant about oolitic limestone is that that type of stone is not local to the area. So testing of the stone to comparable samples from different sources of oolitic limestone led researchers to believe that it originated near uh, what is today the Czech Republic in a town that has no vowels. B-R-N-O? Brno? Got the one there. I think it's Brno. Well... That means either the raw material or the completed statue was brought to Willendorf from nearly 200 kilometers away, which would be about a 38-hour walk, according to Google Maps. It's quite a walk. If you took the sidewalk. Yeah. It might be shorter if you cut through the woods. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you shave off eight hours or so. Still, that's more than a day of walking. Also, the Venus... So the Venus of Willendorf is also called the Venus One statuette because... There were others, but this one was painted with red ochre, which is best preserved among the ridges of the hair details. As far as its age, because it is stone, the figurine cannot be dated directly, but radiocarbon dating of samples taken from the same layer suggests that it was carved around 25,000 years BP. So the Venus of Willendorf is Venus 1. There was a Venus 2 found also in Willendorf. In 1926. She's got friends. She's got a bestie. Yeah. The midge to her Barbie. <laughs> I never had, I like had a Barbie. I never really. Well, midge was introduced to like make Barbie more wholesome because like people were like, oh, she's just like sexy. And they're like, no, she's not. She's got a best friend named Midge. She's a redhead. Well, that'll do it. This was, I think was in like 1963. I think she came out. All right. I was into Midge because I had red hair. Okay. Oh, you still do. I do. It's true. Yeah. So describing Venus 2, Midge, the head of the figurine is broken off. The front view shows that the sculpture is slightly twisted in the middle of the body. The area of the shoulder is well modeled. What does that mean? Below the neck. got great shoulders. Yeah. Below the neck on the left side of the breast, there is a rather indistinct structure possibly representing the left arm. Between belly and thighs, there is only a roughly cut depression. The back of the figurine seems to be unmodified. That's known as the, the thigh brows. The thigh brows? Like those creases? Mm-hmm. Oh, I like yeah. that. Thigh brows. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Uh, well, anyway, mm-hmm. those, those thigh brows are only roughly depicted. Yeah, well. Only the transition from the bottom to the legs is clearly cut. In the area of the shanks... <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) She got them shanks. Um, The separation between left and right leg is clear. The Venus 2 is rather roughly cast in most parts. Only the shoulders and the legs seem to be well modeled. Perhaps it was left unfinished when the head broke off. So someone was still still working on it and dropped it. Oh, beans. (laughs) I just really like that she... Uh, that Antelweiser saved that for the mm. end. <laughs> Perhaps it was left unfinished when the head broke off. <laughs> and yeah, and this one was found in the same. No, this one was found later. 26. Um, subsequent excavations. Yeah, yeah, but there was another one, a Venus 3. It was found in 1908 and looks like a potato. Uh, <laughs> which. I mean, did you look at it? I did. It, it just looks, it like, looks a like a potato. <laughs> we'll have pictures of that potato up. On our Facebook page and on our website. A lady potato. She's got a, it's got a bow on it. <laughs> a little pink bow. Um, so the so-called Venus Three from Willendorf is a modified piece of ivory, but was often doubted to be a figurine. 
A cut mark on the front side was regarded as delimitation of the head. There was someone like, maybe they hadn't started yet. Like maybe they were marking it out like this is where the head's going to go. You know, it's like, and until then, it looks like a potato. Only the side view gives an illusion of the shape of a human sculpture, possibly, with head, bottom, feet, belly, and neck. An almost identical piece is known from the Russian site Zaresk, the female figurine number two, where the head is also marked by an incision on the front side. In contrast to the piece from Willendorf, the Russian figurine also shows two cut marks at the back, one separating the head from the body and the other one marking the bottom. We cannot be sure what the Venus III meant to the Ice Age hunter. In ethnological context, wooden pieces are used as puppets, but would never be recognized as such without a description. Uh, th- this author fails to note in which ethnological contexts. Like all yeah. my kids, my, my kids had a potato and they're like, yeah, anyway. From a formal point of view, there are too few indications to classify the piece as a figurine. Yeah, she's got a chin. Like, that's it. This brings us to our next section entitled, Yeah, But Why? Yeah, I'm on board with this section. So now... <laughs> we got one lady and two potatoes. So, <laughs> but why? Yeah, we've got, we've got one lady, two potatoes, you know, about 140 other various Venuses of wherever... Um, all from the Paleolithic. But before we go much further, we should take a step back and discuss whether they should even be called Venus figurines at all in the first place. So as a refresher, Venus was the Roman goddess of erotic love, beauty, and fertility. Connecting these From anthrop- whence venereal disease. Yes. Yeah. Um, connecting these anthropomorphic figurines that we're talking about today with Venus is what we call an a priori assumption. What evidence is there that these represent a goddess, much less one that has anything to do with sex or fertility or that anything about these says anything about ideals of physical beauty? Perhaps a better name, according to some scholars, is woman figurines. <laughs> so while we're at it, should we even consider them similar enough to be in a single category? There are many theories concerning their purpose, and most of them lump them together as a single homogenous group of objects. And in the words of Marcia Ann Dobras, who wrote about this at, for the entry for Venus figurines in the Oxford Companion of Archaeology, they, quote, collapse together more than 20,000 years of varied production, end quote. Right. So are we assuming that for 20,000 years, people thought that these were exactly the same things? We, we are. And produced them with as, exactly the same intentions. As we will explore over the next several minutes. Yes. <laughs> so um, there Great. are, yeah, there are lots of theories that are attempting to explain the function of these figurines. And those theories range from the, quote, functionalist ideas of, um, one, are they symbolic objects that are related to marriage or mating partners? Because maybe the there was no state to like uh, what adjudicate marriage, so marriage or mating partners, um, and the importance of ensuring the continuation of populations in the very because remember this is the ice age, and so the climate would be inhospitable, and there would be scarce resources in that ice age world, or so this is like just in case you've never seen a lady, <laughs> yeah. Here's what one looks like. And like, yeah. So it's like, don't forget. <laughs> they look like this. <laughs> Find one. <laughs> um, or another functionalist uh, theory is that they served the function of being objects of pleasure and or education for men um, with sub theories of like, so sort of which flavor of this theory you like being um are we talking about the sensuality of curvy lady, lady figures? Were they were they toys or educational models? Or were they the arguably less palatable theory of, quote, trophies to mark brave acts of rape, kidnapping, and possibly murder? Um, so that theory is less popular today than it was when it was first Good. put forward. Uh, because at some point over the past several decades, somebody must have pointed out, like, hey, don't you think that's kind of gross and heterosexist? Um, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. Yeah, so swinging to... Optics, not great. <laughs> so, so we're going to swing that pendulum to the other end of the, ugh, really, spectrum, um, with a set of theories positing the figurines as representation of physiological processes pertaining to pregnancy, childbirth, or womanhood in general. 
Um, it's just a figural representation of what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of these <laughs> um, people that put forward this idea make the very good point that womanhood and fertility are not synonymous. Being a woman and being fertile are not the same thing. Um, and this pushes mm-hmm. back against the original assumptions that gave the figurines the descriptor of Venus in the first place. But there's also a lot more to womanhood than baby making. Even with that proviso, there's still explanations that require a lot of conjecture, not a lot of evidence, and are rooted in contemporary social mores. Um, and so, in the conclusion to her, in, in the conclusion to her entry of the so-called Venus figurines in the Oxford Companion to Archaeology, Dober says, "Quote: Attention to different kinds of site context." detailed understanding of various techniques of fabrication, recognition of their diverse morphologies and raw material, site-specific spatial information, and consideration of other classes of artifacts with which Venus figurines were discovered may help turn attention away from what is compelling today and toward whatever might have been compelling in prehistory. But let's forget all about that because Anna's got some stuff for us. (laughs) So here's exactly what we need. What's compelling today? (laughs) And now... Some dudes weigh in. This this one is a family affair. It is. So this is a study that was performed in 2011, or at least published in 2011, by a researcher named Alan Dixon and his son, Barnaby, or Barney. Amber and I spent about 10 minutes Googling oh, just to, to make sure that they were everything Because I thought related. they were like bros, like sexologist bros. Literal bros, biological bros. Brothers. <laughs> they have the same last name. And I was just like, this is wild. Yeah. So it's a father and son uh, research team. They're both, they've both got PhDs. They're both pretty well established researchers. Yeah. But anyway, but not um, archaeologists, they, as you may. They are not archaeologists. To... And they're also not ladies. <laughs> Which, um, but they have things to say about the Venus figurine. So here we go. <laughs> The earliest known representations of the human female form are the European Paleolithic Venus figurines, ranging in age from 23,000 to 25,000 years ago. We asked participants to rate images of Paleolithic figurines for their attractiveness, age grouping, and reproductive status. Attractiveness was positively correlated with measures of the waist-to-hip ratio, WHR, of figurines, consistent with the, quote, sexually attractive symbolism hypothesis. However... Most figurines had high WHRs and received low attractiveness scores. Participants rated most figurines as representing middle-aged or young adult women rather than being adolescent or older postmenopausal. While some were considered to represent pregnant women, consistent with the, quote, fertility symbol hypothesis, most were judged as being non-pregnant. Some figurines depict obese, large-breasted women who are in their mature reproductive years and usually regarded as being of lower attractiveness. At the time these figurines were made, Europe was in the grip of a severe ice age. Obesity and survival into middle age after multiple pregnancies may have been rare in the European Upper Paleolithic. We suggest that depictions of corpulent middle-aged females were not, quote, Venuses in any conventional sense. They may instead have symbolized the hope for survival and longevity within well-nourished and reproductively successful communities. So that was the abstract of their study. (laughs) Moving on to their methods. I don't like their methods. They have some notes. They're psychologists. Yes. Yeah. So like, so it's really interesting to try and understand where these figurines came from, but it's just, you can't, you can't know. Cause they got, you can't they got know. people, they got like staff people. They like got, well, let's, okay, let's, great. Yeah. Go on. Let's talk about the methods. <laughs> okay. So they were, they, they got people to participate in this study in which they showed people images of the Venus figurines and asked them to rate them along these certain categories. So Participants viewed each image for 15 seconds, during which they were asked to provide ratings of age, pregnancy status, as in pregnant or nah, and attractiveness. Participants were not asked to assess the exact age in years of women depicted by the statuettes. Um, They were instead classified in one of four age groups, adolescent, young adult, middle-aged, and old age. 
Um, and this was because, they say in the study, the processes of adolescence and aging in adulthood may have occurred at different rates among hunter-gatherers in the Paleolithic than is the case in modern industrialized human populations. Attractiveness of each image was rated using a six-point Likert scale. Should be Likert. Likert? Likert. Really? Yeah, it's Likert. Oh. Um, which is like, the, you, you are probably familiar with Likert scale, everyone, where it's like strongly disagree, disagree. Oh, okay. Do, I am. It's that, a Likert scale is the having things from strongly negative to strongly positive, and you just drop a pin wherever. You, that's, that's a Likert scale. Oh, I like Likert because it's whether you like her or not. I'll move on. Um, the six-point Likert <laughs> scale was zero is unattractive, one, only slightly attractive, two, mildly attractive, three, moderately attractive, four, very attractive, five, extremely attractive. Okay, so there's that. They rated the figurines. In study two, they used eye tracking technology. Um, and so. Which is what they do. This is what the Dixons um, have experienced doing. They've done other eye tracking studies on, on subjects looking at possibly sexy things. Yeah, and um, my mom is also a psychologist, and she also uses eye tracking technology in her studies although she doesn't deal with sexiness she she she, people looking at boobs no she has babies looking at objects oh gosh i know it's pretty great that's much more wholesome than this one (laughs) (laughs) the thing that i was confused about in this study and and then the more i thought about it the more annoyed i was with it is that they specified that in this study, the participants were heterosexual men and heterosexual women. And they're asking heterosexual men and women to rate the attractiveness of these Venus figurines. So men, heterosexual men who are looking at these Venus figurines and determining if they are attractive, that attraction, that like that's along the lines of sexual attraction, right? Presumably. Uh, yeah, I guess. Whereas heterosexual women, I assume, if they self-identify as heterosexual, are looking at the Venus figurines and judging them attractive or not based on more lines of objectivity, I suppose. Like objectively attractive versus – like they're not attracted to them per se sexually. But my, my, my question is, you know, if you are including women in your study, why not specifically include women who are attracted to women? Uh, yeah, and also why not also include well why not include people who are sexually attracted to women and people who aren't sexually attracted to women? Yeah, of both uh, sexes. And so, yeah, like yeah, yeah, and so just like because like standards of beauty apply to women who aren't attracted to women, right? Because it's something that they either want to look like or don't want to look like. I I would guess if I'm if I'm putting together such a like simplified like approach to like right and so like has just like hetero dudes and hetero ladies looking at these like yeah the pregnancy thing i can get like if you look at someone you can try to you it would be interesting to see if bystanders would well they also included one contemporary statue Mm -hmm. of just like a lady but okay i mean (laughs) let's suffice to say so this, this is study so, okay. Was... Here is a great example of people that do not have like a solid foundation in studying the Paleolithic who are taking a different approach to material culture from the Paleolithic. With you know interesting implications, but I think the study itself is fundamentally flawed. Well, it's a really it's, interesting idea, and it's very much rooted in the present. Yes, but Anna. Yes. Do you have a moment to talk about the mother goddess? Always. Great. So, while we will never know for certain whether Ms. Willendorf and her associates were indeed intended to represent deities in antiquity, uh, they have definitely transformed into them in modernity. For our purposes, it all starts in 1861, not with the Civil War, but with Johann Jakob Backofen who was John Jacob Jingle Hot so no? Backhoffen, okay. who was the father of matriarchy. I yeah. What? So he, he 
No. He is the one who laid the groundwork for theories of prehistoric matriarchy in his book, Das Mutterrecht. Uh, das Mutterrecht. Um, the full translated title of this book is Mother Right, an investigation of the religious and juridical character of matriarchy in the ancient world. This came huh. up in a class that I took because I thought we were in this class together, but you had graduated by this point. It was amazing. But like studying this stuff oh, was sorry, I missed uh, it. bonkers. And um, best as I can tell, before he threw his hat into the old matriarchy ring, he was a classicist and specialized in Roman law. So he took a hard well, left. Yeah. Into matriarchy yeah, so studies. he he retired early. He's like, no, I need to focus on me, and by and like <laughs> wrote this direct. And so he looked at the sources and determined that. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I couldn't find any. <laughs> I thought that maybe I'd like forgotten it. What, what do you mean? I I used the sources. Yeah, and so he. You, so that? it'll become. What other sources it'll, do you need? The oh sources. Gosh. It'll become obvious, like, as we go through the, the different phases, like, what his sources really were. He determined that the foundation of human society is motherhood and that maternity informs the root of religion, morality, and codes of conduct. From that, he proposed a mother right or matriarchy, uh, which formed the basis of an or religion, which over time evolved away from the mutterrecht. So, or religion, or I guess, or religion, um, and things like Sure. Or Spraka. Like these are terms that deal with like original, like original religion and like original yeah, speech. Or, and this idea of like yeah. primordial humanity, um, oh, which I find very no. fascinating. <laughs> but over human history, it formed the Mutterrecht and then evolved away from the kind of went astray and evolved away from the Mutterrecht. And what was this? So okay. stage one is hyterism. Um, and this is from the Greek word hytera, which refers to like a specific type of sacred prostitute. So this is very hedonistic. Sure. So it's this wild, okay. nomadic, chthonic or like earth-centered phase characterized by communism and polyamory and whose dominant deity uh, Backhoffen believed to have been in like some kind of earthy proto-Aphrodite. So this like... So he, this is just his character, his multi-step characterization of the development of human society. Yeah, and so like tracking okay. human okay. society from its earliest form through the the matriarchy, and then ultimately giving way to patriarchy. He's he's pro matriarchy here. Um, he's okay. He is very much a male ally, and then you have the emergence of the Mutterrecht. And that's a matriarchal lunar phase based on agriculture, characterized by the emergence of chthonic mystery cults, which you remember from that class you took. Uh, um, boy, do I. <laughs> and and law, the emergence of law. And so its dominant deity was an early Demeter type. So it would have been like a agriculture goddess, like a and mm -hmm. so still very maternal, because Demeter is is also a mother in the um, in mythology. She sure is. And so then, moving away from the Mutterrecht, you get into the Dionysian. Um, and so it's this transitional phase where when earlier traditions were masculinized as patriarchy began to emerge. Um, and so its dominant deity was the original Dionysus. So this, like, party this dude. This is what happens when you stray too far from mummy. Yeah, and so I guess also if you look at, like, the... Dionysiac cults and things. It's mostly like the the back eye and like it's like lady cults and the main ads. Yeah. So these are yeah. like lady cults, mm -hmm. and then um, that finally gives way to full on patriarchy in the Apollonian period, like the Apollonian era, where you have the patriarchal solar phase. So you're moving from lunar, like a, a lunar based, you know, and then like all the lady, lady stuff with like lady times and. Like Demeter, uh -huh. so you move into the solar phase with like the sun gods, when which all trace of the matriarchal and Dionysian past was eradicated and modern civilization emerged. So, all right, that is the point where the traces of the most erect were lost and had given ways, and that you have like you have solar deities which are often masculine 
And so they're sort of also at the the head of pantheons and things. And um, Mm -hmm. here's a here's a um, the line from reception on Wikipedia that made me laugh out loud. There was little initial reaction to Backhoffen's theory of cultural evolution, largely because of his impenetrable literary style. But eventually, along with furious criticism, the book inspired several generations of ethnologists, social philosophers and even writers. So they got yeah, through eventually. So they, they're like, <laughs> nobody had anything to say because they didn't read it. And then once they did, they were like, oh, so those writers in- included lots of famous people, but some that a lot of people have probably heard of um, Joseph Campbell, the like myth guy and uh, Friedrich Engels, half of Marx and Engels, that comedy duo. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, yeah, da, 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 da. the way that Engels took it was looking at this this period, like the Dionysian period, as being the point at which women were separated from the means of production. So that's what that fate, that's how the Mutterrecht gave way to patriarchy. Backhoffen's book was published nearly 50 years before the Venus, the Venus of Willendorf was even discovered. So what's the connection between the two? Well, um, it comes in the form of the later work of Lithuanian archaeologist Maria Gimbutas, whose career spanned almost the entire latter half of the 20th century. Uh, She started out as a specialist of Bronze Age and Neolithic Europe, but um, in the 70s and 80s, she kind of went off the rails into a more theoretical realm uh, with books about the goddess with a big G. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. I've included a YouTube video of a full lecture delivered by Gimbutas later in her life uh, it's i think in 1989 and a collection of her writings live at the opus archives at the pacifica graduate center in santa barbara um which describes itself as quote a dynamic center for the advancement of the fields of depth psychology mythology and the humanities so there's a big joseph campbell library there so this is very much like looking at these so oh. you know you look at this thing like okay. depth psychology mythology and the humanities that's like that kind of or religion thing and so they summarize so this this collection summarizes her work on old Europe, and she's the one that came up with the term old Europe, which referred to both the geographical area and the social structures that existed before the Indo-European influence. So more stuff that oof, um, and was based on her work on the cross disciplines of archaeological artifacts, linguistics, ethnography and folklore that led to her, led her to posit the thesis that the European prehistoric culture was female centered and worshipped a mother goddess as giver of all life. So that's that chthonic fertility goddess that like proto Aphrodite. So in Gimbutash's last book, The Civilization of the Goddess, which synthesizes the work and theses of her previous books, she wrote, quote, this is a quote from Gimbutash. The primordial deity for our Paleolithic and Neolithic ancestors was female, reflecting the sovereignty of motherhood. In fact, there are no images that have been found of a father god throughout the prehistoric record. Paleolithic and Neolithic symbols and images cluster around a self-generating goddess and her basic functions as giver of life, wielder of death, and as regeneratrix. End quote regeneratrix i know right i love it further in civilization of the goddess gimbutash outlines the symbolic understanding of old european societies had of the universe and the divine and she wrote quote the multiple categories functions and symbols used by prehistoric peoples to express the great mystery are all aspects of the unbroken unity of one deity a goddess who is ultimately nature herself end quote so I understand now where the mythos of about 70% of the fantasy books I read comes from. (laughs) Yeah. So her work was huge. This work was huge. So the work that she had done early in her life that was like very much rooted in archaeological material, like evidence, it was good. It was well received. But this was huge and it had a profound impact on second wave feminism. Um, Remember, this book came out, the, the, the earlier versions came out in the in the 70s and the 80s and so this was right in this right smack in the middle of second wave feminism and just as a refresher first wave feminism was the wave that focused on suffrage and legal recognition of women Um, and that kind of went on up until the emergences of second wave feminism in the 60s which was more within the realm of women's liberation and expanded taught to tackle topics of sexuality family dynamics sexual violence and workplace discrimination and so that's when things around sexual harassment first started coming out and Title IX. So that's 
That's second wave. Both of these waves really only dealt with white, middle class to wealthy cisgender women, which is something that subsequent feminisms have largely sought to rectify. So that's when we talk about the waves of feminism. That's what Mm -hmm. that one is. Um, And so it makes sense that an age old matriarchy to which we could return would be appealing to people. Um, especially when, um, I know some died in the wool second wave feminists who talk about like women, like realizing that like they could divorce their husbands and like leave the house and like be independent. And it was just this like earth shattering, like idea because no one was doing it. at the time. And it's like really amazing. And so it makes sense that like in this time, they have this idea of like, oh, we could bring back the matriarchy. That sounds great. But there's one problem. And it's the same problem we've already run up against today a few times. Uh, There's no proof. We have no proof of what either the ancient artist or the ancient audience took away from the material culture that have been pulled into these narratives. And so Andrew Fleming was an archaeologist who was a big critic of the the mother goddess theory. And he got in on like the ground floor. I know nothing about like motives. But in 1969, so like years before she published this book, he published an article, The Myth of the Mother Goddess, that tackles the subject of eye goddess statues, which are Neolithic and Paleolithic, I think, statues that are highly stylized representation of, guess what? Eyes? Eyes. Yeah. And they aren't like lady eyes. I mean, they all look like owls because it's just big old eyes like carved into things. (laughs) So like this idea of like the eye goddess. And so he he writes in his in this um, essay like, nah, it's size. <laughs> like <laughs> that's the whole essay. Like, nah, it's it's yeah, it's pretty short. Um, but by far the most scathing critique of Gimbutash's work that I know about was released. I realize now um, possibly immediately after Gimbutash's death in the journal Antiquity by Lynn Meskel. Um, who is at Stanford. And so it was entitled Goddesses, Gimbutash, and New Age Archaeology. And in it, she examines the causes and pitfalls of weaving attractive fictions into archaeological research and and kind of gets mean about it, real mean. Um, and like pulls in it, like interesting aspects of Gimbutash's own story, like this idea that she lived through the Nazi invasion of Lithuania. She lived through the Soviet invasion. And so like, did this inspire her to look for something anti-patriarchal because of these like, because so Gimbutash's work is about like these peaceful, loving matriarchies and like the mother goddess and like was this why she would want that yeah and so but mescal gets kind of mean about it this was like one of her first this is her coming like right out of the gate in her career and was like (laughs) oh boy whoa whoa gloves off Uh, whoa (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i get why she was so steamed about the misuse of archaeological records for contemporary social and political gains so this is this isn't totally unlike the conversation we had about alistair clowley and Thalema back in our Dirt After Dark episode of um, you've got people that are misinterpreting um, deliberately or otherwise appropriating and remixing aspects of ancient history and material culture to fit an explicitly modern purpose. And mm-hmm. Cynthia Eller sums this up pretty concisely in her book, The Myth of Matriarchal Prehistory, uh, when she calls work like Kimbutash's an ennobling lie, where like, hmm. It's it's nice. It sounds nice, but it's not real. And like using something that's not real makes it harder to look for. Muddies the water too much. Yeah. And so these two worlds, those of archaeological resources and mother goddess theories, collided a bit more in the work done at Chatelhoyuk, which is a very famous Neolithic site in what's today Turkey that we'll have to talk about sometime. Well, it'll get its own episode. Uh, it's probably, yeah, probably a series. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, in 1961, the original excavator, an American named James Mellart, found a terracotta statue of a seated woman flanked by two felines. Her head and the right hand slash feline head because she had her hands on each of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. They were both missing. Okay. And at the time. And so the object is commonly interpreted as representing a woman giving birth on a throne. Because when you're giving birth, you want your cats there. Yeah, I'm not. But I think I think the throne is. I don't think that they're real cats. No, I I think that it's a throne that is like 
got cat oh. arms. Oh, okay. Yeah, so also it gets it gets kind of pulled into this idea of the mistress of the beasts, which is a motif yeah. that comes up in like Greek art. Mm-hmm. And it's called the the Potnia Theron, which is like the mistress of beasts, is what that's what that is in Greek. And so She's called that, but that's not great because this is using a name for something that is a ennobling lie. Yeah. 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 And like trying to find this universality when actually this is thousands of years apart, thousands of miles apart and like totally different context. There's no way to know. Yeah. Yeah. And so people like to call it that because it's easier to remember, I guess, if you're looking at this. But there are several other lady statues that were found and identified as goddesses. And they're all described in Mel Art's book, Chateau Hoyuk, A Neolithic Town. And for folks that want to see it, I found an open source version avail- that I'm going to post in the show notes that's scanned. And so if you go and you search goddess, like the word mm-hmm. goddess, and then it'll, you can kind of flip through the different the illustrations. So there are photos of objects and illustrations cool. of objects. And there's also like wild conjecture. <laughs> like where he talks about what like oh this is obviously her she gives birth to her son who is like man's role is clearly defined and like he knows where he comes from and like all this stuff and i'm just like bro like that's like how do you, all of this is what and so it's just like <laughs> looking at like those early excavations of of places that become very famous and it's like oh wow this is what we're basing all of this off of is this guy's notes and mm-hmm. like, it's sort of like description of figures. And so here's a figure and here's him telling you about like some myth, some 6,000 year old myth. And I'm just like, where did you get that? This is a like, and so it's really fascinating. So that was back in the 60s. <laughs> and um, the role of the goddess theory was, was, was definitely felt for many decades to come. And so research at Chatehoyuk fell off for a while and then was picked back up. In the late 90s, and the new excavator, Ian Hodder, and his team, and Ian Hodder is like a big post-processual guy. So he's a guy that's really into like the sort of the touchy-feely archaeology of of, phenomenology um, and... Yeah, so you have, yeah, and so this is sort of this this movement away from trying to, like, there was a a movement to make archaeology as scientific as possible, and sort of like, if you ask the right, if you ask enough questions, the material will give up its answers kind of thing and then there was this push back against it which is sort of swinging that pendulum back in the other direction of like no like let's experience it getting much more theoretical and so his team he and his team were invested in multivocality and the concept of multivocality is something that I'm quite fond of um, and it's the incorporation of as many perspectives in the excavation interpretation of the archaeological record as possible so usually those types of initiatives seek to include researchers from diverse backgrounds because remember archaeology started out as mostly the business of like rich white christian men that had military backgrounds Um, right and so when you started to incorporate like poor people and women and queer people and disabled people you started to like have a very different approach to things um and then they also try to incorporate descendant communities and those are all things that they do at Chateau Hoyuk, but they also added another level of multivocality. Mm-hmm. Um, the, shall we say, descendant spiritual communities, the goddess feminists. Oh, yeah. And this is the thing that I texted you about where I was like, I forgot about this because it struck me. <laughs> well, I, I never knew about it. So, yeah, I, so I, I, found, yeah, I don't know how um, to react so or what to expect a, what a is this 2007 article published in the journal of feminist studies and religion um entitled archaeologists and goddess feminists an experiment in multivocality um opens with the following <clears throat> and this is by um catherine roundtree okay who says based on fieldwork at chatelhoyuk i examine multivocality in this article as practice focusing particularly on the voices of archaeologists and goddess feminists for whom Chatelhoyuk is an important ancient and contemporary sacred site. I consider how power and meaning are articulated and negotiated between these two groups, and I query the politics and purpose of multivocality when one voice, archaeology, is attributed official interpretive authority while another, goddess feminism, which produces an apparently dissenting interpretation, is not. I conclude by looking at recent positive steps toward establishing a dialogue between women in the goddess movement and the archaeologists at Chatelhoyuk. So the 
the Chathohoyuk team start, tried to incorporate um, these goddess feminists who are part of this like neo-pagan like spiritual movement who look to that Potniotheron statue and things like and like the work that Mellart put forward as evidence, as inspiration, but as as sort of substance for their spiritual views. Mm-hmm. And I just like mm? Yeah, I mean, you've now enlightened me and I still don't what? And so the yeah, so the experiment what so what Roundtree writes about is that practice of having people that aren't archaeologists but have a vested interest in this talking about it. So it raises a lot of questions. And I think maybe it was Ruth Trangham that had said something about this because Ruth Trangham is also a big old feminist archaeologist. So I was at Berkeley and so that's where a lot of like feminist archaeology theory came out in like the 80s and 90s and she gets into like really like wild woo stuff and like do it. It's like Chatohoyaks on Second Life. So you could like Wow. Yeah. So they did they did that. Let's can and we link to that? Is that something we could link to? I, if it's still live, yeah, I'll put it on there. And so Let's like looking that. at these these ways of like these like just straight up weird ways of approaching stuff and just like new ways. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. This is interesting. And it's sort of like it is all interesting. And so it seems like a you know, if you got time and health insurance, <laughs> it's like totally like worthwhile to think about it just from like a post enlightenment perspective, just like, sure, think about it for thinking's sake. But are we getting any closer to answers? We're certainly not getting any further from answers, I think, if we're like playing with these types of ideas. But um, I'll link to the article itself. But it is just sort of this like, well, huh. Kind yeah, of. like I have such trouble when we talk about so, this kind of thing because it's so interesting to me, but I'm just like, but where is the evidence? How do I science this? Right. And so it's all very, and I think that this is as valid as those two guys tracking the eye movements of hetero guys looking at boobs on old statues. I think that it's like two sides of the same coin and they were using like quantitative data, but their quantitative data is untethered. Like it's not anchored. It's all relative. It's not absolute. So their quantitative data is relatively valuable. It's like to the same degree as the interpretations and the like emotions that are elicited by this material um, that can be qualitatively recorded from the goddess feminists at Chatelhoyuk. They aren't absolute metrics for like, this is what the past was. But here are two two things of like, well, we know that now we know that people that subscribe to ideas around standards of beauty and like sexual attractiveness, these are the postpartum, prepartum pregnancy status. Mm-hmm. Like, so we know what that they think. It's just like a data point. It's not an answer. Yeah. Eh. But all of that is to say that grand unified theories are almost always a bad idea. So like, yeah. where there is no like deep past. There is no like mutterrecht because people are different everywhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it <laughs> implies that in every place for long stretches of time, people were involved in these big monolithic cultural practices, which we know from other evidence is much less likely to be true than than yeah seeing local and chronological variation so the absence of the motorrecht or a mother goddess like predating everything like shouldn't be interpreted as a win for patriarchy or like a dang against matriarchy because like no, matrilineal just... and matrifocal societies have existed and do exist yeah today like this even like comes up in our human evolution episodes like there's no point at which all of people are the same and right. do the same thing. And also, I think that the examples that we gave forward to that, that we put forward today, like are really good illustrations of the fact that archaeological theories and interpretations are very much informed by the contemporary circumstances of the people putting them forward. Yes. Yes, and they are. That's one of the things that the movement that Ian Hodder is a part of and like ideas like multivocality try to get at and hammer home is that like 
you're you're biased because it's because it's you and your work right. reflects you, you. You live inside your own brain. Nobody else yeah. does. Nobody else can. And everything that you and so create the more out brains brain, you get, yeah, the more brains you have thinking about this and talking about it, the less likely that we are to totally miss the point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which we try not to do. Wasn't that fun? That was very fun. And I was not nearly as confused as I thought I was going to be. Oh. So for me, that was a personal win. But who knew? Like people have seen like the Venus of Willendorf. Like has, who like, knew that it was so connected to all this So many stuff. things. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you everyone for listening. As always, uh, mm-hmm. we we love that we have listeners that reach out to us and that support us. You guys have no idea how much that means to us. It's really, really wonderful. Um, You can find us on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, pretty much any other platform that might give you your weekly podcast fix. Um, You can find us on Facebook at The Dirt. Uh, We have a really fun page and community going over there. So come check us out. We we post interesting stories as they pop up from archaeology and anthropology. And we post events like our upcoming yes. live show recording in March. So that's going to be fun. Yeah. If you're in Sacramento on March and you're 25th, you're free on a Monday. Come hey. say hi. Oh. Or yeah. if you're at the Sacramento airport later that evening, come say <laughs> hi. Because I have to take a red eye back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bud. Uh if you want to write into us about anything that you have questions about or things that about that we've talked about that have given you ideas, you can do that at the dirtpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to talk about the motor wreck with me. Don't email me. <laughs> email Amber's personal email for that one. If you want to tweet at us, you can do so at at dirtpodcast. And on Instagram, we are at the dirtpod. If you want to see all of that in one place, as well as all of our other episodes, you can and our faces, you can yeah. go to the dirtpod.com. And you can go <laughs> see us on YouTube now. If you just go to YouTube and search <laughs> the Dirt Podcast AMA, our a video will pop up of us talking for two hours, answering yeah. listener questions. Uh it's pretty great. And there and are so, timestamps, so if you just want to only listen to, or if like we start rambling near the end, you can just click on the timestamp and it'll go to the next question. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. Doing you a solid there. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but thank you again so much for listening, and we will be back soon with more stuff. Next week. Next week. If not sooner. <laughs> Probably next week. Probably next week. Put us down for next week. Yep. Pencil it in. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.